You are listening to a message from Parkway Church in Corona. We hope that you enjoy this message, and if you would like to know more, you can visit our website, parkway-church.com, and find out who we are and what we're about as a church family. Try not to be too long, and I do want to encourage you that there will be some time of prayer at the end, because I think there's some victory that all of us are thinking of or planning on or hoping for, praying for, and I think corporately and even personally, individually, we're going to agree in prayer that there's going to be certain battles won here today in the area of prodigals. Um, the topic of prodigals uh, generates a lot of interest. Believe it or not, statistically, four out of five Christian families have a prodigal in their life. And it can be the traditional definition of a prodigal who was someone who at some level had a relationship with Jesus Christ. But also this message, you need to know, um, will apply to people who've never made a decision for Christ. So I hope that you can get something out of it. If there isn't a prodigal in your life or in your acquaintance, this may apply. And this will apply to somebody in your life who hasn't yet accepted Christ. Every informed writer on this topic has agreed that if every past believer who once had a personal connection with a local church, who claimed at one point that they had a personal relationship with God, if they were, were to return to the local church, we don't have enough room to hold them. Some say their numbers rival the numbers presently attending church, which is amazing. Research shows us that prodigals don't ever forget their church or Christian roots, but regularly feel forgotten and rejected by Christians. Unfortunately, the research shows that the church doesn't see the present urgency in winning them back. The church has routinely accepted this prodigal phenomena as just another normal church reality, bad seed or good seed, God bad. Well, it didn't work for them. Well, we dismiss it. No real sense of urgency. And this sense of believing that it was good seed gone bad, it kind of eases our conscience and allows us to either focus on the needs of the congregation or the new ones coming in. But we won't worry about the ones we lost. I refer to the prodigals as the missing congregation. That's my name for them. They have the Lord's mark on them. It may sound harsh and a little unfair, but we haven't always done a good job welcoming them back. I know this from firsthand experience. Some of you were here when you heard my own personal story. How many were here that Sunday when we talked about my story? I know what it feels like to walk into a room and see conversation stop. People wouldn't know where to look. Old friends would feel awkward around me. I could see they didn't know how to get past my prodigal years. Maybe we don't want to do it, but we brand people. We give them labels. And sadly, those labels stick for a long time. 
two main questions being asked by believers who have prodigals are, is it reasonable for us to expect the prodigal will return? And what role do I play as a believer in their recovery process? Now, some friends will tell you not to get your hopes up too high. And when it comes to seeing the prodigal come back into your life, well, don't get your hopes up too high. And I say to that, find yourself some encouragers and avoid the naysayers because they're no help at all. I love you, but I'm just being real with you. Don't expect him back. Don't expect her to come back. Find some new friends. You need encouragers in your life. Believing for the return of the prodigal can be a lonely road. You'll start off with a number of people with great intentions, all of them agreeing to journey with you. But as the road stretches out, you'll find that the majority of your supporters will eventually fall away. At some point in the journey, you will feel all alone on this. The real test of your resolve will be measured by your determination to keep the faith and persevere to the end. On this prodigal journey, things will often get worse. Now, this is important. Things will often get worse before they get better. Don't be shocked by that when, as you start to focus and pray towards the recovery and the coming back of the prodigal, the circumstances start to get worse. It's very normal. More than once, I've had one believer tell me that since they began to focus on the prodigal, things got worse. As you love them and pray into the situation, you may discover that new tensions between you and them will develop. One lady made the observation, the more she prayed, the worse things got. I told her to keep praying because she was on the right track. Folks, it's quite normal that any, strain, uh, any strategy to win back prodigals could potentially manifest itself in what initially appears to be a negative reaction. There might be some initial alienation between you and the prodigal. But understand this, the negative reaction is more likely a manifestation of what's happening in the spiritual realm. Not with what you said. So they don't know why they're upset with you. All you've been doing is praying more intently and loving them more. And you see the anger come up and then you feel the gap between you and them. And the tension is there. Understand that it's not necessarily what you're saying that it's triggering this. It's what's happening in the spirit realm that's affecting them. This battle or journey or process, whatever you want to call it, is being played out on several fields. First, it's being played out on a spiritual level. Reclaiming prodigals is as confrontational as it gets in the spirit realm. Because they once knew the Lord but have fallen away, the enemy sees these souls as prize trophies. You can expect some opposition. Second, it's played out on a personal level. It's about being relational. Relationally is how you interact with them on a day-to-day -day basis. It's how you function with them in their everyday life. This is where you show sensitivity and considerations for their feelings. This is where you be real and hear me, not overtly religious. 
Religious is a killer. Loving is of Jesus. Being religious and hitting him in the side of the head with a 10-pound Bible is not loving. We need to remember, after seeing someone who needs Jesus in their life, they're just people. They have dreams. They're normal in every other way. Their life isn't centered around Christ. But why should it be? They're a prodigal. A relationship with Jesus is something they're not familiar with. Their life is, generally speaking, centered around different things. We need to look past their fallen condition and see them as people. Let's keep in mind that each of us are on a spiritual journey. So is the prodigal. But you're in a different place in your spiritual journey, and they're in a different place. Understand that. The fact is, they just haven't encountered him at this point yet. I don't know about you, but I can remember even to this day where I was when I finally recommitted my life to Christ. And I can tell you the names of those believers who made an effort to stay involved in my life. I wasn't just another statistic to them. I wasn't just good seed gone bad to them. It's important to their spiritual recovery that you and I see them and interact with them in love and with sensitivity. And the love has to be genuine, no strings attached. If the prodigal ever senses that they're nothing but your next spiritual project, then the gig is up. You'll lose any influence you had with them on a relational basis. Up will go the walls, and they will write you off. If we're going to love someone, we have to love them unconditionally, no strings attached. You can't love them in a I'm-trying-to-get-you-saved way. You have to love them. Period. Many Christians struggle with trying to maintain the balance between loving the prodigal and not condoning their sin. Let's remember God is the one who deals with the sin. Your job is not to deal with the sin. Your job is to love them. He deals with the sin. You're not the one that's going to correct them on what they should do or believe or think. He's going to deal with them through his Holy Spirit and he will bring this to them in the journey. But all the way along, they see love in you. And they identify that as the love of Christ. They haven't sinned against me. I might not agree with the things they're doing, but the sin in their life isn't me. It's against God and themselves. I've also had conversations with parents and single spouses and heard them say, maybe I'm hoping for too much. All of us are familiar with the parable of the lost sheep. When the shepherd left the fold of the 99 to go find the one. I can't imagine the shepherd saying to himself, well, maybe having 99 is enough sheep. Think about it. If you have 99 out of 100, you're doing pretty good. Not this shepherd. He says, no. I'm going to leave the 99 to find the one. And my hope is that you never give up on that one sheep. 
When others were telling my family that it looks hopeless, he's too far gone, don't get your hopes up, he won't be back, they kept praying and believing. They always made me feel welcome in their homes. They stayed involved in my life. But understand this, your decision to walk the prodigal journey with a loved one or friend will cost you something. At times you will experience moments of elation, then disappointment. And then all of a sudden one day you'll feel encouraged by something they said or something they did. And then the next day you'll feel frustrated by something they did or something they said. At times you'll be thankful, and then there'll be anxiety. Then there's always the good old-fashioned worry. This experience of journeying with a prodigal has risk and reward built into it. The risk is the journey will be emotionally and physically draining. The reward is it could be the greatest faith-building experience of your life. No doubt about this. This experience will be one of those times in your Christian walk that you have to trust the Lord. Because everybody who has a prodigal in their life, if they could make the difference by doing something on their, under their own strength, they'd go and do it. Who wouldn't do it? But how many have had a prodigal to know no matter what you devise or scheme, it's not going to make the thing happen? So this is one of those faith-testing things in your life. And I don't care how mature a Christian you are, that's going to put you in a place where you have to trust the Lord. Another point, the return of the prodigal may or may not happen in your lifetime. Whoa. In our church in Hamilton, we had a brother, an elder, Don Smith. Probably one of the greatest men of God that I've ever met in my life. I've never met a man more humble. I've never met a man who was more devoted to prayer. But Don had a son named Paul was a true prodigal. So here we have this father, Don, incredible man of God, faithfully committed his family to the Lord in prayer, but had a son who rebelled. And a son who thought he knew his own way to go. Paul lived a pretty rebellious life, and he rejected everything about the teachings of Jesus. I can tell you right now that Paul's waywardness was a real heartache to Don. Nevertheless, Don prayed for Paul daily. One Sunday morning, being one of the elders, Don had just finished serving communion. I was in the service the day this happened. Excuse me. When you have a nose this big, it runs sometimes. Hint, hint. He's so perceptive. <laughs> you got to understand, brother, I only tease the people I love. I tease you a lot. I tease you a lot. Thank you. After serving communion, Don returned to his seat. Shortly thereafter, the people around him and then the rest of us noticed Don was slumping in his seat. 
His wife will tell you the story that as he was slumping in his seat that Sunday morning, all they heard was the name Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And down he goes. Well, the service stops. We bring into, break into prayer. The paramedics are called in. They take him out of church on a stretcher, take him to the hospital, and the call goes out to the whole family, get to the hospital, Don Smith is fading away. He never regained consciousness again. And shortly after lunch, in the early afternoon, Don passed away in the hospital. Now the whole family was there, including Paul. When Paul got to the hospital, he never had another word with his father. His father never spoke another word after what he had said in the church. But just minutes after his dad passed away, in the halls of that hospital, Paul recommitted his life to Christ. Don never lived to see his prodigal come back. But in his living days, and this is for every grandparent and parent, and spouse here. In his living days, he never failed to commit his family into the care of the Lord. And he died with that faith that you are going to take care of my family. Now, Paul became a very zealous reader of the gospel, of the Bible. I had the opportunity, not too long after that, and we have searched high and low, cannot find it. We did a, a video interview with him. And his heart was so busting for God after that day that he said, Norm, I want to go into the ministry. And so we videotaped this interview, and everything was going well. I kept in touch with him. A few months went by. And Paul called me and said, Norm, his wife, by the way, was a non-believer. He said, Norm, I'm really struggling. I'm hanging on as hard as I can. But the pressures at home and the pressures from old friends and that old life, I'm finding it hard. And so we would pray together, and I knew he loved Jesus. It was 18 months later maybe not even quite 18 months, maybe 12 months later. I was speaking at a men's meeting in Windsor. And I got back to the place where I was staying. It was late, maybe 11 o'clock at night. And I got a call from my wife. She said, Norm, you need to know, Paul was tragically killed tonight in an accident. And my heart just went boom. So there you have a praying father who for years trusted God to bring back his son Paul, never lived to see the day that his prodigal came to Christ. But just two short years later, he and his son are reunited in heaven. Now some people saw it as a real tragedy, and there was a little boy left and now a mom, and I saw the human tragedy. But in hindsight, We saw a heartbroken dad trusting God, believing the son, salvation for his prodigal son. His son recommitting his life. Now, two short years later, they've been reunited in heaven. 
Yes, we lost them both, but in all my years of being a believer, I can't think of a better testament of the faithfulness of God than this story of Don and Paul. If you can find a greater story to the testament of the faithfulness of God, I'd love to hear it. The Lord may be gracious enough to let you see the day the prodigal in your life comes back, but he may not grant you that experience. But you can trust him either way. Believing for the return of the prodigal takes an emotional toll on the believer. It will be a huge test of your faith. And by the way, being emotional doesn't make you less spiritual. All of us from time to time take a ride on the emotional train. And some believers have said, you know, I'm so emotional about this. Maybe I'm just not as spiritual as brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. Being a little bit emotional has nothing to do with how spiritual you are. It's okay. A lot of Christians, sadly, unfortunately, wrongfully condemn themselves for being so emotional at these times. Being emotionally connected to the prodigal is not only understandable, it's a big part of who we are as parents and spouses and such. What it does mean, though, we have to learn how to engage our spirit man or woman to play a more dominant role in how we process and ultimately deal with things. It's not easy, but we need to submit our emotions, even our senses, to the spirit man inside of us. Circumstances around us can play havoc with our emotions. Things that we see and hear with our natural senses can and will fool you. By using your natural senses, the enemy wants you to believe that the prodigal situation is totally hopeless. When we see the life choices a prodigal might make, it's natural to be concerned and even upset. But don't rush to judgment. With the Lord, things are not too far gone. A believer who has learned to put their trust in the Lord and is led by the Spirit isn't easily derailed by unchecked emotions or what their senses are telling them. It's okay to be emotional, but it doesn't give you the right to beat yourself up. The Lord would have you walk in joy knowing you're committed, you've committed your loved ones into his care. You need to put your emotions on notice that they're not running the show. One Sunday morning at the end of the service, I was approached by a lady who proceeded to tell me how overwhelmed she was by the wayward living of her adult son. She told me how he once had a relationship with the Lord, but had since fallen away. And she admitted that this situation with her son was so overwhelming, it totally consumed her. She literally thought about it the first thing in the morning, and the last thing she thought about before she went to bed was her son. And she said to me, Norm, this thing is absolutely overwhelming me and robbing me of any joy in my life. As I listened to her, I sensed this was a case of her focus being in the wrong place. I asked her to picture with me that her wayward son, who's the problem, and she was standing there facing me physically. I said to her, let's turn. And we looked this way. I said, over here, imagine your son. So 
We were standing almost shoulder to shoulder. And we're envisioning this son, and she's in her mind, she's picturing everything. All the disappointments, all the hurting, all the bad mistakes, all the times she's fretted and worried over this man. She's a mother. She loves her son. I said, okay, let's turn this way. So I physically turned her around, and now we're focused this way. Now, over here, you have Jesus. In all his capacity to solve problems, to put love into situations, to do creative new works, his love for you, his love for the son. And, she's, and now she's into it. She's focusing she sees Jesus. I said, by the way, is your problem still here? And I swear to you folks, this is what she did. She went, yeah, he's back there. <laughs> I said, wow. Let's look at your son again. Turned her around. Whoa. Is Jesus, is Jesus still here? She goes, yes. He's back here. I said to her, here's the problem. We're constantly focused on the problem. You're constantly focused on the helplessness and the hopelessness of the situation. But if you can just adjust your focus to be on Christ... Not diminishing your problem. I wouldn't insult her or anybody else saying the problem's not real. It's real. But if you can put your focus on Christ and his capability of dealing with the situation, I think you'll be better off. So we got talking and she accepted that. We had a word of prayer. It was six months later. I was at a church function and this little lady came running up to me and said, Norm, I want to talk to you. And she's just beaming, got a big smile on her face. I didn't recognize her at first, and then she reminded me about her son. And I said, oh, yeah. I said, you look so happy. Now, I'm assuming by looking at it, I said, how are things? She goes, great. Now, what are you thinking? I'm thinking, he got saved. She goes, no, he's worse than ever. She said, seriously, he's worse than ever. But I'm so happy. And I said, well, fill me in. Well, she said, apparently, apparently her son said to her one day, something's changed in you, mother. You don't seem to love me the way you used to love me. And she said, why would you say that? Well, he said, you used to fret and cry and be upset. And if you heard I came home this or that. You're always beside yourself, and I'd hear you in your room crying, but now you smile, you... And she says, well, okay. Um, all I've done, son, is turned you over to Jesus, and he's going to deal with you. <laughs> so... The look on his face, I guess she said, was stunned. I'm going to let Jesus deal with you. And what had happened is because of her change of focus, 
The prodigal problem was no less. But she learned how to put her focus, and it restored her joy. Okay, we're almost done. We're getting through there. Still with me? Uh, ushers, are the door still locked? Good. See, that's how you solve your problem when come and leave it. You'll lock the doors. Jay, we got to talk. <coughs> now, pray for your pastor. How many love their pastor? <laughs> Buddy. <laughs> Let's go back to Jesus' time. Another little illustration you need to know about. At the time that Jesus told the parable about the 99 and 1, every family, now most villages were related. Most villages, it was cousins and uncles and second cousins. and Most villages in that time were all interrelated. Now, I don't know how many families are in here this morning, but basically every family in the village would own a few sheep. So you, you girls might own two sheep each. You guys would have no sheep because you just don't look responsible enough. <laughs> One day you'll work for the girls. Everybody in the village had sheep. But here's what they did. They put them into one flock. That was the custom. They would put them in one flock and put a shepherd over that. So now you can imagine, the, the news comes back to the village. 99 are saved, but we're missing one sheep. Whose sheep? All our sheep. It wasn't that you were missing one. We're missing one. Why should anyone in this, in this church, why should any grandmother or adult or spouse bear the burden of their own prodigal by themselves when you're in a body like this? That lost one is our lost one. Now do you see the, the joy and the unity and the, the magic of being in the body of Christ? <clears throat> you don't carry that burden alone. We're going to carry it with you. Another big thing about the prodigal situation. Another interesting point is you... Um, will likely not be the one that brings your prodigal back to the Lord. God has a plan, and he uses the entire body of Christ. I remember a lady in Hamilton. Her name was Lorraine. She, had a, she came to a monthly prodigal group we had formed, and she uh, had a brother named Elwood. And Elwood, about 43 years ago, decided to step out of the faith, turn his back on God, and go his own way. And the tension between them for 43 years was that every time they would get together, because she loved her brother, 
And every time they would get together, if the Lord came up in the conversation, Elwood would just go crazy. And he would tell her, do not. I'll be your brother. We'll have a relationship. Do not bring up the Lord. Elwood got sick. Elwood got put into the Hamilton Hospital, the general hospital. She brought this news to the, hospital, uh, to the, the group, the small group that was meeting. My brother Elwood's in the hospital. And it wasn't looking good. He was starting to, he was starting to uh, fade. And they didn't know how many days left Elwood had. So she would go in, and every day she wouldn't know if this was the last day she was going to get a chance to speak to Elwood. And sure enough, she couldn't help herself. She could only talk about the weather so long. And finally, she would say, Elwood, I have to share with you. It's on my heart. Jesus loves you. Well, then he would just lose it. Ouch. Yeah, that was. It was a Wednesday afternoon, and she went in to see him. And again, as normal, she talked as long as she could about other things in life and the kids and who's, how so-and-so doing and everything. And finally, she said, Elwood, and something came up about the Lord. And this time, he was so furious, told her to leave, don't come back. If you can't ever visit me without talking about the Lord, just don't come back. And she left, and Thursday morning, about 10 in the morning, she got the phone call that Elwood passed away in the night. Here's a woman who had prayed for her brother for 43 years to accept the Lord. She left Wednesday afternoon, him rebuking her. So she was at the funeral a couple days later, and people from the church, as is the custom, tried to show support for everybody, and people were coming up, and she was up by the casket. People were coming by in a line, and a lady came by that she recognized from the church. But she also looked familiar another way. This is a true story. This lady came back by and standing. And Lorraine said, you're from the church, right? Yeah, 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 I said, Lorraine, blah, blah, blah. And the lady said, isn't it wonderful news about Elwood? And Lorraine was shocked. What do you mean wonderful news? Lorraine was that tall, but she could, uh, she could take down anybody. She was... What do you mean? She said, well, maybe I haven't had a chance to talk to you since Thursday. She said, but I was on the afternoon shift. Oh, you're a nurse at the hospital. Yes. And she said, you know what? There was a time in the evening, it was just Elwood and I, and I went in. She said, I didn't say anything profound. I just said, you know what, Elwood, Jesus loves you. And she said, tears came into his eyes, and she said, I led him in a sinner's prayer, and he accepted the Lord. Lorraine is hearing this news standing at her brother's casket. True story. Hamilton Bethel, check it out. You may not be the one that leads somebody or a, a prodigal back. You may be involved in leading back somebody else's prodigal. That's how the body of Christ works. Now, I'm going to try and wrap this up. I know it's been a long morning, so I'm going to kind of go through some things here. I just want you to know that it's sad when the church identifies a prodigal as an embarrassment. It's sad when the church sees them as a mark of shame. It's sad when we sweep them under the carpet. We mark them as damaged goods. We purposely keep our distance from them. 
We have to be careful not to make them feel out of place or unwanted. The older brother, brother attitude of Luke 15. That's the attitude we get when we reject the brother coming back. Satan has already been defeated, folks. This happened 2,000 years ago at a tomb in the garden. And here's the connection. Christ defeated Satan. Christ is in us. Through him, we have authority over Satan. The saving of your prodigal is the Lord's desire. He's not willing that any should perish. So do you see the order? Do you see the chain of command? He's not willing that any should perish. You have Christ in you who happened to have already defeated Satan. You've got good company with you. So be reminded he is defeated, that you have the authority. And in that context, I'm suggesting you come against him, claim your loved ones for the kingdom, and put your faith in Jesus. In closing, as you journey through this process of winning back your loved ones, you can unintentionally fall into the trap of believing there might be a formula. And this is the last point I want to make this morning. I know this has been a little clinical, giving you points and things to remember. But oftentimes, Christians will get into the habit of thinking there's a set list of things to do. There's a set way to pray. There are certain key words to say. None of that is true. You pray what's on your heart. You pray what the Holy Spirit speaks into you, what he makes aware to you. There's no 10-step fixed program here to win back prodigals. If someone ever publishes a program that says, come and take our little booklet in our program, it's 10 steps to how to win back a prodigal, save your money. Don't go. It's the love of Christ in you is what's going to eventually win them back. Intercessory prayer of faith in Christ that what you've committed to him, he will keep. Remember, some of these people as children made a, made a decision to serve Christ, accepted Christ. Then something came along and derailed them. And nine times out of ten, it wasn't Jesus. It was people who said they represented Jesus that turned them on. Somebody said or did something that offended them. If you ask most prodigals, they didn't abandon the church because they, of what Christ did or something that... No, it was the people in the house that did something unloving. Now, maybe in a sense they deserved it. But the point is, we're, we're to love them. Prayer isn't a tool to convince God to make good on his promises according to your agenda or timing. Pray first that the will of the Father is done. Pray for wisdom. Father, show me how to speak to them. Pray that there's nothing in your life that shouldn't be there. Pray for the prodigal. 
Great intentions aren't enough. You need to search your heart, prepare yourself for the role the Lord is about to use you in. And you're going to find that 90% of it is love. Some of us have to go back to some of them and say, I'm sorry. I haven't loved you the way I should have loved you. I'm guilty of that. Just bow our heads. I'm going to ask a couple questions. Nobody's looking around. have a prodigal in your life? Okay, hands down. How many know the Lord loves them as much as he loves you? How many know that? How many know that it's the desire of the Father that none should perish? We could fill up the front of this church. That's the way we normally do things. We ask people to come forward and then we have prayer teams come, which is powerful. That's why what happened earlier in the service, I think, was powerful. I, I would have been just as content to just carry on the whole morning doing nothing but praying for the needs in this place. It would have been a worthwhile event. But I also honor this opportunity the Lord has given me to share a few thoughts about bringing back the prodigal. But I believe the prayer can reach you where you are. I'm just that unconventional that you don't have to be up here to get the miracle God wants in your life. I believe that the corporate faith, the combined and collective faith in this room alone could see unbelievable victory in the kingdom. I believe that the prayers in this room right now and for the next few minutes when we pray, I believe are going to go outside of this room, are going to travel many, many miles and touch many, many lives and circumstances are going to start changing miraculously in people's lives. That's what I believe. remember the stories that I've witnessed. I saw a man die and his son come back to the Lord in the afternoon. I saw a sister pray for 43 years for her brother and saw someone else lead him to the kingdom just before he died. I've seen some great things, not by my working, but what the Lord has done in these situations. So is there anybody here that doesn't believe that if we pray in this next minute, for lives that you see on your hearts right now. Everybody focus on the prodigal in your life right now. Is there anybody here this morning that doesn't believe that if we pray that our collective faith together won't start changing those situations right now? And then in his timing, the Lord will start to lead them lovingly back into the kingdom. I would suspect most of you believe in the power of prayer and what God can do in these lives because we're asking right now a really big thing.
This is no small thing we're asking the Lord for, folks, is that all these lives connected to us in this building are going to be touched by the Holy Spirit, and God's going to start to change some paths and change some lives. So, Father, I pray right now, and I'm in agreement, I believe, and I believe we're all in agreement that what we're about to ask you is a large thing. What we're about to ask you is we're about to put the names and the faces of those people that we see in our hearts and in our minds, those loved ones in our lives. Some of them are spouses, some of them are children, some of them are grandchildren, some of them are a parent or a sibling, some of them are a next-door neighbor. So, Father, we each come to your throne as a group holding up to you the faces and names and lives of the people we have in our heart. And we're asking you, Father, in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, that by your precious Holy Spirit, that starting this very moment, situations and circumstances in the lives of these people is going to start to turn, is going to start to change, that obstacles that were once in the way will start being moved. Grievances, wounds, anything, any harsh word that got in the way and sent them off track. We pray for healing. We pray for restoration. Father, we pray right now we come against the enemy who is going to block and do everything he can to block their return. We rebuke him in Jesus' name. And so, Father, I feel a very powerful, wonderful thing is happening in this service right now. Oh, precious Jesus. Lord, I Father, give everyone in this room courage and faith and let them go with an expectation that you are already working in this situation. Let them leave with a faith and an expectation that this prayer has been heard and will be honored. Let no one here walk away and be discouraged. Don't let anyone step out of this church and walk into that parking lot and the enemy saying that's not going to happen. We rebuke him. We rebuke anything that comes into our minds that sounds like that. We claim it. We ask it in Jesus' name. If you're in agreement, say amen. God bless you. Pastor. Thank you so much for listening to our message. We pray that it blessed and encouraged you. If you would like to know more about Parkway Church, you can visit our website, parkway church. And if you liked what you heard, we would love for you to come join us here at Parkway on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m. 